And of course, what we just sang comes from John 13, verse 35, which says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, says Jesus, if you love one another. So that's very much in line with what we're going to look at this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So I invite you to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You can find that on page 1136 in your church Bibles. Let's hear from God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll be reading the whole chapter. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, yet he does not yet he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do eat. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Amen. Congregation, the German reformer, Martin Luther, once wrote this, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. This morning, we're going to consider how to deal with differences within the Christian community. And as we do so, I'd like us to keep this statement from Luther in the forefront of our minds, that we are at the same time subject to none and also subject to all. The specific issue that Paul is addressing in our passage is this. Is it okay in their time to eat food that has been offered to idols as part of a temple sacrifice? In those times, especially in the city of Corinth, where this church is, people worship all sorts of gods and idols, that is, statues made in the name of other gods. They would go to the city temple, offer up a sacrifice by killing an animal. They would worship their god in that way, and they would butcher then the animal's parts 
and have a feast by eating those parts, cooked, of course, in honor of their pagan god. So following the sacrifice, following the service, as it were, there was a potluck, or better, a banquet made in the name of that God. And the question is, what if you, a Christian, a follower of Christ, and not these other gods, what if you were seated at that temple meal, at that temple banquet? Should you eat the meat? To eat or not to eat? That is the question that these people are facing. And here in our passage, Paul shows us how to think through this question as Christians. He teaches us the priority of sacrificial Christ-like love towards believers who have a weak conscience. Let me repeat that. Paul teaches us the priority of sacrificial Christ-like love towards believers who have a weak conscience. He shows us that there's something more important than our freedom, than our rights to do something. And that something is love. Love has priority in the church. Practical acts of love towards one another. Let's consider our passage this morning under three headings. First, love builds up. Second, love considers the weak in conscience. And thirdly, love sacrificially protects the weak in conscience. So firstly, love builds up. In the opening verse, Paul talks about possessing knowledge about food offered to idols. He says, we possess this knowledge. Himself, he himself, and the mature Christians in Corinth have a right knowledge concerning this food idol issue. Now, we'll unpack what that knowledge is a little later on, but for now, what's important is this. They are knowers. They're in the know. They know something that the less mature believers don't know. And the first thing Paul says about their knowledge is that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge inflates your ego like a puffer fish. It makes you bigger than normal. It gives strength to your shoulders. It makes you look down on others. Surely you've felt what this is like at some point in your life. There's just something about possessing knowledge that others don't have that puffs up your ego. It makes you think, I'm something. You guys don't know what I know. I'm something. Knowledge is fertile ground for the weed of pride. Knowledge puffs up, says Paul, but love, on the other hand, builds up. Knowledge without love is useless. So good doctrine, correct facts, right knowledge about the world and about the Bible is useless without a love that accompanies it and adorns it. But knowledge with love, a love for God and a love for people, a knowledge with love is excellent. And it builds up. Brothers and sisters, love, that is biblical love, is oriented towards others. 
It builds others up. It edifies them spiritually. It encourages them in the faith. It prays for them. It seeks their spiritual good. Now today, our culture's idea of love is almost the opposite. It's that it's more of a feeling. Love is that good feeling you have. It's inward. It's about me. But Scripture reminds us that love is primarily outward. It's accompanied by feelings, yes, but is an outward action towards others and towards God. Love builds up and it helps and it serves other people. Um, A medieval theologian named Bernard of Clairvaux puts it like this, There are those who seek knowledge for the sake of knowledge, and that is curiosity. There are those who seek knowledge to be known by others. That is vanity. There are those who seek knowledge in order to serve, and that is love. In order to serve, for the purpose of serving and building up the body of Christ. And so thinking about the issue then of eating or not eating, eating, this meat sacrifice to idols, the most important question is not which is correct, which is allowable. Give me the right answer. No, the right question is what is most edifying? What most builds up and protects and cares for my brothers and sisters in Christ? That's the first point. Remember that knowledge alone will puff you up It'll be a weapon that hurts others and tears them down rather than building up. You need a love, a Christ-like love, because love alone builds up. That's our first point. Secondly, then, love considers the weak in conscience. It considers the weak in conscience. In verses 4 through 6, Paul expands on the knowledge that he and the more mature believers in Corinth have, and they share together. He says in verse 4, We know that an idol has no real existence. And secondly, that there is no God but one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God, is one. That's the Shema, the historic Israelite confession that we believe in one God. Yes, there are plenty of so-called gods around us. There are many gods and idols and statues that people serve, but in reality, there is only one God. Paul is affirming that. There's one Creator, one Lord. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By Him and through Him, we exist. There's no other God. And so all these idols are false, and the food that's offered to them in their honor, it's just food. Nothing's happening to the food. The gods aren't eating or defiling this food. That's the knowledge they have. They know this, and it's biblical. It's true. It's correct. But how are they to use this knowledge? Paul says in verse 7 that not everyone possesses this knowledge. Not all possess this knowledge. At at the time, some Christians were convinced that if food has been offered to idols, then that food has been defiled because it's been used in a religious ceremony. 
to a false pagan god. It's been used for idolatry, so Christians must not eat it. That's their position. And you can see why. You can understand that. It's not ridiculous. They believed it was wrong, that it was a sin to eat that food. And Paul says, they're actually not right on, they're not correct on this. Idols don't have existence. There's only one God. But the reason they believe this is because their conscience is weak. Their conscience is misinformed. They don't have the right knowledge that you have. And the loving thing to do in that situation is not to steamroll over them and say, well, you're wrong, you've got it wrong, so we'll do it my way, but rather to show consideration to those who are weak in conscience. Now, congregation, let's take a moment here to just think about this concept of the conscience. What is it and what's it for? We could say the conscience is your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. Let me repeat that. It's your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. It's that little voice inside your heart. It warns you before you do something that you believe is wrong. And it condemns you after you've done something that you believe is wrong. So it both warns and condemns. That little voice. But your conscience is not, and get this, it's not the same thing as God's law. Because your conscience can be wrong at times. Think through this with me. Your conscience is not necessarily always aligned with God's law and what God requires of you in this life and the truth that is in his word. Rather, your conscience works off what you believe is right and wrong. Here's an example. Under the Old Testament Mosaic law, under the wisdom of God and his providence, eating pork... So meat from pigs was forbidden. This is clear in the Old Testament. That was a clear command. So your conscience, if you're living in the Old Testament, would say to you, you know this is wrong. Don't eat that meat. It displeases God. It's defiled. But in the New Covenant and in Scripture, Jesus has declared all foods clean, including pork. So now... You're completely free to enjoy your bacon and your pork chops with a free and clear conscience. And we praise God for that. But if your conscience is misinformed, it's not aligned to the truth of God's word, and you think pork is still forbidden by God today, then your conscience is going to push against the thought of eating pork for dinner tonight. Because you believe it's wrong. What that means is this. Your conscience can change and it can be calibrated to the truth. Just like calibrating a sprayer for the farm or calibrating an engine, so too your conscience within you can be calibrated and aligned with the truth. It can loosen or tighten. 
And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But the important thing is this, brothers and sisters. Never go against your conscience. This is clear in parts of Scripture, including Romans 2. You don't go against what your conscience says to you. Whether it's perfectly calibrated or not, you must always listen to your conscience as it is now. Romans 14 tells us that everything that does not come from faith is sin. If you have doubts about whether doing something is right, and there's a prick in your conscience, but you do it anyway, you're not living by faith. That is sin. Even if the action itself wasn't actually a sin, like eating pork or bacon, It's still a sin because you've gone ahead with what you believe is wrong. Right? You're saying in your mind, well, this is wrong. I believe God says it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that is sin. It's the opposite of faith and the opposite of an obedient attitude and disposition. God sees your heart and what you believe in your heart. He sees your conscience speaking to you and he sees you ignoring your conscience. He sees you thinking, this is a sin, but I'm going to do it anyway. And so we must obey our conscience. Now, some believers in the church, in this church as well, have a well-informed conscience, closely calibrated to the truth of God's word. But other believers in the church might have a weaker conscience, and that's okay. But some have a weaker conscience. And a weak conscience is usually very sensitive about issues that are not actually sins. A weak conscience is easily offended. It feels guilt where there shouldn't be any guilt. It stumbles when they see other Christians doing things. And so coming back to our passage then... Paul points out those who are weak in conscience in Corinth. According to what they believe is right and wrong, it's sinful for a Christian to eat food offered to idols. But the mature Christians, including the Apostle Paul, know that it's not actually sinful. It's not wrong to eat that food because idols aren't real. Stop making such a fuss about it. The food, nothing about the food has changed. It's just food say these mature believers. So do you see the problem? They have the freedom to eat this food. They have the theological backing for eating this food. You could even say they have the right to eat this food. But Paul says, remember, that love builds up. There's something more important than your freedom and your rights And that important thing is that you have the duty of love. What is the duty of love? It's our third heading. Love sacrificially protects the weak in conscience. That's the duty we have, to sacrificially protect the weak. Reading verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And here we see that idea of being subject to none. You're free. You can do whatever you want in Christ. 
and yet you're subject to all. We're thankful that in our society, freedom and liberty are regarded as rights. In the United States of America, this country, has civil liberties. There are many rights um, for all citizens. And the idea of freedom and liberty, liberty actually stems from the Christian idea that people are made in the image of God with inherent dignity and rights, inalienable, inalienable rights. And so these are good and just. But Christianity never says that we are free to do whatever we want, whenever we want. Rather, it says your exercise of freedom must always submit to the duty of Christian love. There's a limit to your freedom, brothers and sisters, and it's limited by the duty of Christian love. If someone with a weak conscience sees you eating idle food, won't that become a stumbling block to their faith? They believe it's sin. Won't that person be spurred on then to sin against his own conscience? Well, these respected Christians are doing it. Maybe I should just go against my conscience and sin as well. What if they copy what you're doing and sin against God in their heart? If that's what's going to come of your freedom, of your supposed rights, says Paul, it's better to choose not to exercise your freedom at all. This is radical, especially in an age where people are always putting forward their rights, what they are entitled to, their freedoms. True Christian freedom is a freedom to put others first. Take care, says Paul. Be careful because, verse 11, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. That's what your freedom does to this person. It destroys them. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, Paul says, you sin against Christ. Here is a question for you all. Is this how you view your brothers and sisters in this church? That they are those for whom Christ died died, and that when you sin against them, when you make them stumble, when you fail to protect them and care for them, you sin against Christ himself. These are strong words. Before you think of the weaker member in this congregation or elsewhere as annoying, as a burden, as, oh, avoid them, oh, write them off, ignore them. Remember that Jesus Christ spilled his precious blood to purchase that person and make him his own and to make him a part of this body of Christ. Jesus Christ not only died for that person but now lives to intercede for that person and those people even now at the Father's right hand. And when you and I sin against them by wounding their conscience, 
you sin against Christ himself to whom they belong. Now, I want to make this concrete and practical for us. We're not really tempted to eat food that's offered to statues and idols, I don't think, in Gary, Indiana. As a test case, let's think about the use of alcohol. This can be sensitive um, in church context. The use of alcohol. We need to remember that the conscience is what you believe is right or wrong. It's not about what you prefer or don't prefer. It's, It's about sin or not sin. It's about obedience or disobedience to God and his law. And so there are basically two positions that a Christian can have on the drinking of alcohol. And Christians can disagree about this. That's not a problem. First one is it's sinful to drink at all. Christians should not taste a drop of alcohol. Second, it's not sinful necessarily to drink. And Christians may that is, are permitted to enjoy alcohol in moderation. Each and every one of you has a position on this. You don't have to say what it is, and you're free to hold either position. You're free in Christ to believe um, something about alcohol. You might not be absolutely sure about your position, but but you still have a position. And every one of you, when you're asked, would you like a bottle of beer? are going to respond in some way. Your conscience will react. If you feel individually that I'm not fully comfortable with that, a bottle of beer, mm, yeah, there's a little resistance in my conscience, then it is a beautiful and godly thing to say no. This has to be very clear. It is a beautiful and right and godly thing to reject that bottle of beer. And no Christian should violate another's conscience or seek to have that person go against their conscience. Now, if you feel convinced, however, that alcohol is a gift from God, if used in moderation, then you are completely free in Christ to say yes to that beer. Drink it, enjoy it, give thanks to God for it. That happens to be my conviction personally, that drunkenness is clearly a sin against God. It is a sin that Jesus died for to wash you clean from. And it must be avoided by all Christians everywhere. If your conscience says, uh, being drunk isn't so bad, then your conscience is wrong. And it must be fixed. Scripture is too clear about that for there to be debate. So be clear about that. But, and also, if you have a bad history with alcohol then it is good, beautiful, and wise to never drink alcohol again. But drinking in and of itself, the act in itself for all people is not necessarily wrong. Psalm 104 says, God brings forth wine to gladden the hearts of men. It's a gift from God. The wine that is mentioned in the New Testament, Jesus turning water into wine, Paul telling Timothy to drink a little wine for medicine, is alcoholic, at least to some extent. Otherwise, Paul couldn't say, do not become drunk on wine. However, however, although you're absolutely free to have that beer 
or drink that glass of wine, if you know that there is another Christian in the room who would be offended, who would stumble, who would be tempted to sin against their own conscience, then you have the duty to abstain out of love. You must abstain. That is the principle Paul is putting forth. It's not wrong in and of itself. You have the freedom and the right, but you must abstain if it's going to make another Christian stumble. Now, at a later point in time, you might help to inform that person's, person's conscience, help to persuade them, do some calibrating with them, with Scripture. But for the time being, you must gladly and sacrificially abstain and seek to protect the weaker brother or sister. Do you see the principle? Now, one important clarification. This applies to all matters and only matters that are debatable, that are in the gray zone, that are matters of indifference, as Christians have said in history. Adiaphora, matters that are debatable. You don't appeal to conscience for matters that God has clearly set out in his word. Things like, for example, sexual purity or drunkenness or being part of a church and worship. On these things, God has clearly said, you shall and you shall not. But there are debatable matters, those controversial matters, like the use of alcohol or nicotine, Degrees of Sabbath-keeping on the Lord's Day, what should that look like? Can I eat food that is offered in an Asian or Spanish sacrifice to ancestors? Can I watch this or that movie? Can I view this TV series? Can we dress up for Halloween? Can I give out candy on that day? When matters like these come up, debatable matters that Scripture doesn't directly address, we are strongly tempted, aren't we, to push our position, to be puffed up with pride and say, well, I'm right on this matter. Here's why I'm going to follow my way. We're tempted, aren't we, to stop simply with the question, is this allowed? Is this allowed? Because if it is, then no one's going to stop me. It's a free country. Why would I refrain from doing what I'm allowed and free to do? But brothers and sisters, love. Remember love. Love builds up. Verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Stumble. I'll never do it again. This is what love looks like. Do you exhibit this loving attitude and this loving way of life? Love looks like giving up your right, your freedom, your desires for the sake of others. Love is not about you and your inward feelings. It is about others and serving them. Love looks like abstaining in front of weaker believers to protect their conscience. Brothers and sisters, love looks like Jesus Christ. Jesus gave up 
his freedom for you, a sinner. Who had more freedom than God the Son? The one, as we read, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He's the creator. If he had said, no, I will not go to save those rebels, those sinners, I will not give them salvation, dying in their place, if he had said that, there would have been no injustice whatsoever. That was his right. But he said, I will go. And he was born into a sinful world, this sinful world. He was born as a human being. He lived as a man with no place to lay his head. Betrayed by a disciple and abandoned by the rest. Forsaken by his father on the cross. Why? Because of love. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. The only reason that you and I are able to be saved is because of Christ's willingness to sacrificially love and serve you. Jesus Christ was a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none, and at the same time, perfectly dutiful servant subject to all. If you have come to know that saving love of Christ, if you have been served by him and his grace, then you are now called to extend that same love and that same service to your fellow brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters for whom Christ died and to whom They belong. In Christ, we too are subject to none, but at the same time, we are gladly subject to all. May we live in that way with his help. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, would you please make fresh to us the love of Christ, what that meant, the depths of it, the sacrifice that it involved. Who are we that he would love us in this way and lay down his life and spill his blood for us in our salvation? We praise you, Father. We thank you. And we pray that you would compel us by that love now to love and serve our brothers and sisters here. Help us by your spirit to lead sacrificial lives that are pleasing to you and are building to one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.